Hello and welcome to the Women of Faith podcast hosted by Faith Church in Indianapolis. I'm Brenda Soderstrom and I'm excited to wrap up this journey looking at the abundant life Jesus desires for each of us. Welcome to the final week of our spring series, Abundance, Life to the Full. Today we'll be focusing on the hopeful life. Choosing a memory verse for each week has been difficult because the Bible is so full of encouraging verses about joy, peace, and hope. One thing I especially liked about the verses I listed on your handouts was the emphasis on where fullness, joy, peace, and hope come from. They come from God. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In John 15.11, Jesus says, I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Again, in John 14.27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And from Romans 15.13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's provision for us amazes me. Not only does he want us to experience life, but a full life, full of his fullness. If you haven't really been taking the time to memorize these four verses, I'd encourage you to do so in the weeks ahead. Isaiah 55:11 promises us that God's word will not return empty, but will accomplish God's desires and achieve God's purposes. So why is hope so important? Thomas Jefferson said, hope is the pillow for weary heads heart's ease for weary hearts. When hope is gone, what is left? We say of this one or that one, he has lost heart. What we really mean is that he has lost hope. When hope dies, then the heart goes out of a man. So what is hope? Dictionary.com says hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best to look forward to with desire and reasonable confidence to believe, desire, and trust. And Merriam-Webster says that hope is to want something to happen or to be true. And then we turn to a more biblical definition of hope. The Wiley Online Library says hope is confident expectation of what God has promised. Its strength is in God's faithfulness. And my favorite definition from Bible.org Hope is confident expectation, the sure certainty that what God has promised in the word is true, has occurred, and or will in accordance with God's sure word. There are several words translated hope in the Bible, and interestingly, they all focus on this eager expectation. I notice a glaring difference between what most Americans call hope and what God calls hope. Most people use the word hope almost like a wish list, I hope I get that promotion. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I make it to the store before it closes. Really means I want to get that promotion. I want to win the lottery. And I want to make it to the store on time. We desire something to be true or to happen, so we hope for it with no actual certainty that it will come to pass. The lack of certainty arises because the object of our hope is unreliable. We are hoping that our boss recognizes our talent and contribution, but he may not be that astute. We hope the perfect combination of ping pong balls declare us the winner, but we all recognize the randomness of the chosen balls. And we hope that all the lights are synced and green so that we can get to the store right before it closes. The problem in this world is that the object of our hope is unreliable. 
The Bible warns us not to put our hope in objects that will disappoint. Hope, like peace, is closely tied to trust. We are to trust in God alone. I think many of us, without really thinking about it, put our hope in objects that will disappoint. I tend to put my hope in my own abilities, money, insurance, my kids' coaches and teachers, doctors, and trustworthiness and competence of others. As I look at this list, I'm a bit ashamed. It's obvious that none of these objects are fully reliable, yet so often I blindly trust in them, wishing for the best. God warns us in his word not to trust in riches and wealth because they are uncertain and they lead us to sin and unfaithfulness. In Job 31, 24 to 28, he goes even farther, warning us against not just finding our hope in wealth, but finding our security in, rejoicing over, and even worshiping our wealth. God warns us in his word not to trust in idols. Why? Because idols have no value. They can't give us guidance. They're merely made by human hands. They can't speak, see, hear, smell, feel, walk. In fact, they are dead. Why would we think we could hope in them? God warns us in his word not to trust in our own strength or in a powerful military. Hosea 10.13 shows us the natural progression if we do. In trusting our own powers and in soldiers, we plant wickedness, we reap a crop of evil, and we eat a salad of lies. It's a downward spiral, all from trusting in our own strength. I recently completed Jen Wilkins' study on Genesis. She repeatedly shared that the reason Scripture criticizes the Hebrews for going to Egypt was because they sought to feed their sin of self-reliance. Rather than relying on God to meet their needs, the Hebrews looked to the nearby world power, Egypt, and they trusted in Egypt's chariots and Egypt's horsemen rather than God. So what did we learn of Egypt in Isaiah 31, 1-3? That they lie, do evil, are mere mortals who will stumble, fall, and perish. We are not to trust in military power, our own or our allies. We are not to feed our sin of self-reliance. God warns us in his word not to trust in other humans. In Jeremiah 17, 5-8, God says we're cursed if we do because it will turn our hearts away from him. We won't see prosperity. We will live in a parched land. Turning our hearts away from God is very serious. Deuteronomy 29, 18 calls it a root that produces bitter poison. God warns us not just because it's futile, but also because it leads us on a deadly path. God warns us in his word not to trust in our own rulers and our government. In Psalm 146, verses 3 to 9, he says not to trust in them because they are human beings who cannot save. Instead, we're to trust God because God is our faithful creator. He heals, brings justice, provides for our needs, frees us from bondage, watches over us, sustains us, and he reigns forever. God warns us in scripture not to trust these false idols because they are unworthy of our hope. They will disappoint, and in turn, they will turn our hearts away from the one who we can reliably trust. He warns us not to limit us or to punish us, but because he wants to bless us. He knows that our unfaithful hearts are drawn to whatever sparkles, even if in the end the sparkle will be our downfall. God warns us because he loves us and wants to be our everything because he knows only he can deliver all that we need for this abundant full life that he promised us. 
In our homework, we looked up a lot of verses about what God says we are to put our hope and trust in. In him, in his word, his love, his teaching, the resurrection, our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, eternal life, Jesus' second coming. These are worthy of our hope because they are trustworthy. Biblical hope differs from worldly hope in that the object of the hope is 100% trustworthy. Hoping in the promises of God is a sure thing because these promises are 100% absolutely, fully, perfectly, thoroughly, totally, unconditionally, completely backed by God. God's promises are sealed by his name. In Hebrews 6, 13 to 15, Paul writes, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. You see, there was no one greater for God to swear by. God seals his promises with his own name. God's promises are kept by his character. In Joshua 23, 14, it clearly states, You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Why? Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God's promises are sealed by his name and kept by his character. But there's more. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22, it tells us that God's promises are both fulfilled in Christ and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us to the glory of God. Did you catch that? No matter how many, God's promises are yes. Not maybe, but yes and all of them. And this word amen, it's a great word. It means so be it or so it is. Amen means sure or truly and is an expression of absolute trust and confidence. Verse 21 goes on to say that God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We've been sealed. We've been marked for security, confirmed ownership. We have his seal of ownership. And as if that seal wasn't enough, we have his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the fulfillment of the promise of eternal life. As a guarantee for the future, as a guarantee for all he has promised, guaranteeing what is to come, as a down payment of the blessings to come, as the first installment of all that he is going to give us, as a sure beginning of what he is destined to complete, we have his Holy Spirit. God's promises are sealed by his name, kept by his character, fulfilled in Christ, and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Any one of those truths would have been enough to have full confidence. But again, God goes over and above. The Amplified Version of Romans 5.5 says, Hope in God's promises never disappoints us, because God's love has been abundantly poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You see, God's hope never disappoints us, shortchanges us or puts us to shame. And the message says we cannot round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Does this take you back to week one when we listed all the fools that God graciously gives us? 
In his devotional, New Morning Mercies, Paul David Tripp writes, perhaps it's not enough to say that hope is found in God and his covenant promises. That surely is true, but more needs to be said. Hope really does rest on the shoulders of the one who is the fulfillment of all of these covenant promises. It's not enough to say that reliable hope is hope in Jesus. The message of the Bible is more powerful and pointed than even that. Reliable hope is Jesus. In his life, death, and resurrection, your life is infused with hope. The grace of the cross is not just grace that forgives and accepts, but grace that also supplies you with everything you need until you are needy no more. And what does this hope produce? It produces a brand new way of living because the one who is hope has infused your life with hope. You do not have to search for hope any longer and can now give yourself to a life of good works. So why is hope so important? John Piper writes, if our future is not secured and satisfied by God, then we are going to be excessively anxious. This results either in paralyzing fear or self-managed greedy control. We end up thinking about ourselves, our future, our problems, and our potential, and that keeps us from loving. If we don't have the hope that Christ is for us, then we will be engaged in self-preservation and self-enhancement. But if we let ourselves be taken care of by God for the future, whether five minutes or five centuries from now, then we can be free to love others. When God satisfies us so deeply, we're free to love other people. In fact, God talks about this in Colossians 1, 3-5. He says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Then he goes on to tell the source of this faith and love, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. But that isn't all. Scripture tells us that hope can be a springboard for joy as well. Dr. Michael Yusuf writes in Romans 12, Why was the Apostle Paul able to say, Be joyful in hope? Even when he was physically suffering, his hope was anchored in refusing to doubt God's oath and God's covenant that Jesus made with his own blood. So what made Paul rejoice in the midst of the spiritual darkness? It was his hope in redemption. It meant everything to him. The reason we get down and get discouraged is that we have lost sight of the fact that Christ lives in us and our eternity is secured. When you know that God has a detailed plan and purpose for your life, and you know that God wants to be glorified in your life, you are going to endure the difficulties, and you are going to have hope in hopeless situations. You will, like the Apostle Paul, be joyful in hope. Two weeks ago, we saw how God can turn our grief into joy. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we see how God can use his hope to comfort us in times of grief. Verses 14 to 19 tell us why we have this hope, the promise that Jesus will come again down from heaven and we will all be caught up together in the clouds and we will meet Jesus in the air and we will be with Jesus forever. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So not only does God promise to comfort us in the midst of our troubles, in 2 Corinthians 1.4, his comfort extends beyond the grave. Our confident hope in eternity comforts us and we know, yes, we know that death isn't final. In Hebrews 6, 13 to 19, it tells us that hope is a springboard for encouragement and security. This hope is an anchor. It's firm and secure. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, 
We who seek refuge can take hold of the hope that is set before us. It's right there for the taking, this hope, this anchor for our soul. We need to have this anchor of hope because life will take its course. Life will have its peaks and valleys, and we need something to hold us unmovable when the storm comes. Jesus is our hope and our anchor. Storms will come. Be anchored in Christ. Tragedy will come. Be anchored in Christ. Death and chaos will come. Be anchored in Christ. Uncertainty will come. Be anchored in Christ. Whatever life throws at you, be anchored in Christ. Firm and secure, anchored in Christ. Hope is an anchor that gives us both encouragement and security. Hope in Christ also helps purify us. In 1 John 3, 1-3, it says, What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. EnduringWord.com commentary explains that knowing our eternal destiny and living in this hope will purify our lives. When we know our end is to be more like Jesus, it makes us want to be more like Jesus right now. Having the anticipation of being with Jesus, of the soon coming of Jesus Christ, can have a marvelous purifying effect in our lives. It makes us want to be ready, to be serving him now, to be pleasing him now. You see, God loves us too much to leave us where we are. God has great plans for you and your life. And in 2 Peter 1.3, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And finally, 2 Corinthians 3.12 tells us that because we have hope, we are very bold. The message says, with that kind of hope to excite us, nothing can hold us back. Do you notice the progression here? Our hope blesses us with joy and faith and love. It comforts us, encourages us, and purifies us. Why? So we are ready to receive God's boldness. Again, we are coming full circle. God fills us so completely so exceedingly abundantly so we can pour out to others. Hope is so important because not only does it motivate us to keep putting one foot in front of the other, it also serves as a great motivator to serve God and others because we are assured that God is holding us in the palm of his hand. We aren't preoccupied with looking out for number one and we're free to love, comfort, and encourage others. Do you remember the tale of two seas from our study on the joyful life? How the Dead Sea had no outlet, but the Sea of Galilee allowed the Jordan River to fill it and then flow through it. This analogy fits not just with God's joy, but with his peace and hope as well. God never intended for us to hoard the blessings he gives us, but rather to share them so others could come to him and experience the abundant life he promises. You see, God's hope is a springboard for so many other blessings, joy, faith, love, comfort, But God also gives us hope so that we can be bold for him. He wants our hope to pour out of us into the world. But just because God graciously provides hope doesn't mean that we experience it. 
We allow many things to creep into our lives and to steal our hope. Trials and disappointments, bad outcomes, circumstances outside of our control, delayed answers to prayer, fear, worry, tunnel vision, having a worldly, not an eternal perspective. I'm sure your small groups came up with a long list of what steals your hope. Each week I've asked you to list what steals your joy, peace, and hope, and then research verses to see what God has to say about it. I've asked you to write a short paragraph detailing God's truth and what you need to do differently to not allow this to continue to steal your joy, your peace, or your hope. I hope you haven't skipped out on these exercises. I know how tempting it is to skip over the application questions at the end of the Bible study. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what will transform your life. Digging into scripture, allowing God to speak to you personally, and being malleable to how God wants to transform your life, how God wants to conform you to the image of Jesus. If you've glanced over these application questions, go back in the next week or two. Spend some serious time digging in. It's definitely been one of the highlights of my study this spring, and I'm excited for the truths that God has led me to and excited to see how God will complete the work he began in me. I'd like to share a little with you about a pressing obstacle for me, perspective. Now, I feel that overall, I do have an eternal perspective, but sometimes this gets muddied by the circumstances of life and it's difficult for me to see the forest for the trees. I focus on temporary setbacks and disappointments and I forget that the sovereign Lord knows every detail and works every speck of my story for his grander purposes. I love the verses Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yet knowing these verses isn't enough. I need to, as Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 say, run with perseverance, fixing my eyes on Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, I need to set my heart and mind on things above, not on earthly things. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, I need to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, I need to take hold of the life that is truly life. Matthew 6, 19-21, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And where thieves do not break in and steal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, I need to recognize that my light and momentary troubles are achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And Romans 5, 3 and 4, I need to glory in my sufferings, knowing that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. I need to focus and refocus on eternity. Years ago, we hosted a lady and her infant son from Nairobi. I don't remember a lot about our time together, but I will never forget Marcy's eternal perspective. She longed with every bone of her body for heaven. She couldn't wait for all things to be made new for no tears and no pain, for perfect peace, for fruitful gardens, for a new body. She couldn't wait to live forever worshiping God in paradise. It made me realize that I'm often so busy enjoying my comfortable life here on earth that I fail to realize that this 70 or 80 years is nothing compared to eternal life. Christmas is a magical time, 
There's festive decorations, a sparkling tree, and under this tree are beautifully wrapped gifts. Why do we wrap presents? There's something special about tearing into a gift. There's something special about seeing it adorned with curly bows and anticipating what treasure could be inside. I think of our kids when they were younger racing down the steps on Christmas morning, so excited because they had seen these gifts grow over the days leading up to Christmas. For us to not wrap anything and just hand them a toy or clothes on Christmas morning wouldn't have been the same. Yet the wrapping was quickly torn off and discarded. Anticipating what was inside the beautiful package was part of the present, but the true gift was inside the wrapping. I think God does that with us. He's given us everything we need for a joyful, peaceful, hopeful life here on earth. But that's just the wrapping. There's something even better in store for us, and part of the gift is anticipating it. For me, having an eternal perspective means recognizing the big picture, recognizing that there's something very special about God completing his work in my life, conforming me to Christ's image. That's why I'm here. I spend way too much time focusing on worldly milestones, and if you're a mom, you can probably relate to the struggle of competing through your kids' lives. It starts young. What age did they walk? When did they potty train? It continues through adolescence. Are they in advanced classes? What's their GPA? Did they get into college? Did they get a college scholarship? It goes on into adulthood. Did they land a good job? Did they find a godly spouse? And beyond. How many grandkids do you have? Ladies, this life is not a competition. All of these things are great achievements but they don't define us, and that's not God's definition of life, of zoe. Much of what I let steal my joy won't matter for eternity and often won't matter next year, next month, or possibly even next week. I need to know God's promises, memorize, meditate on them, so when Satan's thoughts creep in, I can quickly recognize them and counter them with biblical truth. I need to think more about being more like Christ. That is the goal, not earthly milestones. I need to think more about how wonderful heaven will be. Worry steals my hope and peace because I love this world a little too much. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus and love what God loves and do kingdom work here and now. I admire so many of you ladies listening to this. Young and old, I see your dependence on God your love for his word, your devoted prayer lives, your dying to self, your serving others, I see that and it inspires me and I want to be more like that. On the last page of the study, I asked you to evaluate your own life. Are you experiencing the full life Jesus desires for you? If not, where is the disconnect? Do you need to study more of God's promises to be reassured of his goodness toward you? Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you need to stop listening to the lies that Satan has been feeding you? 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you need to change some habits? In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. 
I asked you to think about what one thing can you change to begin better experiencing the abundant life that Jesus desires for you. I hope you came up with several ideas, but I challenge you to actually implement at least one. I'll never forget Pastor Brian Boone closing his sermons with the challenge that the smallest action is greater than the biggest intention. So how do I wrap up this study? It's hard to wrap something when you know it isn't completed yet. I know God has so much more to teach me about the abundant life, but for now, I'd like to encourage you to choose peace, choose joy, and choose hope. God provides all of these for you, but it's your decision to choose them daily. I'd like to encourage you to focus on the blessings of God not what you think you lack. The Bible tells us that we lack no good thing in Psalm 34.10. Find ways to reframe your mind and your circumstances. It could be through fellowship, through reading and studying the word, praise songs, hymns, prayer, a nature walk. And for me, I need to especially commit to praying scripture because this seems to be my sweet spot for reframing my mind. I'd like to encourage you to choose consciously how are you going to spend that next hour? Are you going to watch a TV show, play a game on your phone, listen to a podcast? Is that really the best use of your time? Is it going to encourage you, refresh you? I'm not condemning all these things, but I caution that they can easily get out of balance in our lives. You need to make God your life, not just a part of your life. Invite him into every area, not just the sacred ones. Know the ways that Satan sabotages you and recognize them early before they spiral. Practice self-care. Don't allow yourself to get too busy, too tired, and thereby give Satan a foothold into your life. I encourage you to be restless in your pursuit of God. If your walk is flat, change your course. Find a new Bible study, seek fellowship, carve out some prayer time, listen to hymns throughout the day. You should not be satisfied with going through the motions. God wants more for you, and you shouldn't settle for just existing. And finally, be bold in sharing what God is teaching you. We need to be like the Sea of Galilee, not the Dead Sea, and let God fill us and spill over. I've seen God do this organically during this time of quarantine, and I'm excited to see God's next steps in my life. I'm thankful for Faith Church and especially the women of faith for giving me this outlet to share what God has been teaching me lately. I'm hoping that God has used these past four weeks to encourage your hearts the way he's been encouraging mine. It's easy to get trapped into busyness and life circumstances and forget the life that Jesus provides for us, the full life, exceedingly abundant life, bursting forth, overflowing, completely saturated with him, completely saturated with him. Thank you so much for joining us these past four weeks. I hope your heart has been encouraged as we studied the exceedingly abundant life Jesus provides for us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>